0: Isaiah chapter 53, and it's from the beginning of the chapter. Um, If you're looking in the church Bibles, it's on page 741. At 741. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth.
1: It just struck, as, as Kirsty was reading that, about verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And it's just wonderful to come uh, this morning, whatever you all may be feeling, uh, but knowing that the Lord Jesus understands exactly what we're, we're going through uh, as the suffering servant. And so we look forward to hearing more about that from Dave. Well, as I've already mentioned, uh, we've had the privilege, privilege of Dave Fielder coming with us, come to speak to us this morning. He was one of our mission partners, but I thought before he speaks, let me just ask him a few questions. So Dave, come up. <clears throat> Thanks so much for being with us, mate. I know you're, you're not feeling right. 100% as well, so that's really no. kind of you. But um, there may be people out there who don't uh, know you, so yep. just give us a little bit about yourself, links with Highfields, and then what you're doing now. Super, great.
2: yeah. Uh, Dave Fielder, originally from Abergavenny in South Wales, now based in North Yorkshire. Um, I spent 20 years coming to Highfields, um, spent 10 years of those on the staff here, um, married to Jill, two kids. Um, I'm now based in North Yorkshire, working for a ministry called Yorkshire Camps. Um, if you're really clever, you'll work out that we do camps in Yorkshire. Well done. Smart, smart congregation. Um, uh, like, uh, unlike many brilliant organisations that just do camps during the summer holidays, we have a permanent venue and it means we can do camps all year round. So we do 40 camps during the course of the year, yeah, sure. weekends away, school, residentials, all those sorts of things.
1: That's, that's high energy throughout the year then. That's yeah. great. So as, at the sort of start of a new year, as you look back, is there any encouragements as you look back over the years? Yeah, it's
2: year? a really great question, Ruth. Thanks. Um, actually, just the really big encouragement is a real, really evident increase in the number of young people just deliberately giving their lives to Jesus while they're with us it's it's a strange feature of camps ministry is that you don't always know whether it's happened under your roof Um, and sometimes you hear years and years and years down the line that oh this kid you know got baptised on Sunday and said they became a Christian with us. And we're like, oh, brilliant. We didn't know that at all. Um, but we're just hearing a lot of stories um, while camp's still going on, and that's just, that's just a brilliant encouragement to know yeah. that children and young people are deciding to follow Jesus while they're with us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And,
1: and as you now look towards the new year, yeah. any sort of resolutions or aspirations for the work yeah. at uh, Yorkshire Camps? Again, a brilliant question. I think the aspiration is just more of the same. Yeah.
2: You know, we, that's what we exist to do, is to enable young people to encounter Jesus and to be spurred on in following him. So just a big prayer that that, that continues. We don't know what we've done that's different. It's just God's grace that uh, he's at work through what we're doing much more evidently in the last sort of year and a half. Um, but we would just pray for, for more of the same, really. yeah, Brilliant, okay.
1: Well, look, before you, before you uh, speak to us, let me just pray for you. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, for Dave and Jill and JJ and Grace Lord, thank you so much. We love them and we are so grateful for them in our lives and for us to be able to be mission partners with them as they spread the great news of Jesus up in Yorkshire, Lord. We thank you so much for the new life uh, that we've just shared about, Lord, and maybe just um, the next steps towards Jesus as well, Lord. And so we pray for the same in 2024. Would you uh, give us the privilege and the pleasure of hearing of young people uh, giving their lives over to Jesus. Help him uh, this morning, Lord, as he battles with ill health. I pray that you give him freedom and liberty and enjoyment as he uh, explains God's word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine.
2: A battle with ill health makes it sound like I'm dying. Um, I, I have a cough. I think I'll probably, I think I'll probably survive uh, time in the pulpit. Um, Guys, it's brilliant to be back. Thanks so much for the opportunity just to come and share with you and for uh, uh, the chance to catch up. Um, We're going to look at Isaiah 53 together. I know that you spent some time before Christmas looking at the first half of Isaiah. And so as we dive back into the second half of Isaiah, we kind of dial forwards from Isaiah's look at Christmas that I know you were focused on in December through to Isaiah's look at Easter. Um, But before we dive into the passage, just You know, I have one question really just for us to chew on, one word for us to chew on as we think things through, and that is the word satisfied. Satisfied. I wonder whether you are satisfied with your Christmas presents. I wonder whether, as you look forwards into a new year, what your aspiration of the things that will need to change in order for you to be satisfied, I wonder what they are. Um, I am an inveterately dissatisfied person. Um, I complain so quickly and easy about things, but I always feel like I've got a reason. Don't you? Um, let me give you an example. I bought a new watch. My old watch died, so I bought a new watch in the sales. Um, uh, I'm, not a very, I'm, I'm pretty old-fashioned. I don't really want a watch that tells me how long I snored for last night or it tells me how much I've changed elevation during the course of the day. I want a watch that tells me the time. So I went very, very basic and old-fashioned and I bought a very simple watch with hands. And you'd have thought that the technology's been around long enough that they could get some really basic things right. Like the fact you can see the hands. (laughs) I managed to buy myself a watch with dark blue hands on a dark blue face. So in anything other than the brightest light conditions, I find myself like... I can't even read my own watch. So if this runs over monstrously, it's because I can't even read my own watch. I found myself thinking, you know, that technology's been around a really long time. There's a really good reason that we moved on from sundials. If I wanted a watch, I could only read in the brightest light conditions during the day. I could have just bought a sundial. Um, I bought it on the 2nd of January. It was my first and I think my only purchase so far of 2024. And I found myself dissatisfied. The only thing I've spent any money on in 2024 and I am dissatisfied. And it's a big question about what, what is it that we're calling on? What is it we're asking for in order to be satisfied? But as I read Isaiah 53, it raises another whole question altogether. Which is, what does it take for Jesus to be satisfied? What does it take for Jesus to be satisfied? We're going to dive into Isaiah 53 and see something that just lit my heart up and hopefully will do you guys good as well. Um, We've just read in verse 5, he, that is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. And in verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity, that's the sinfulness of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for your sins. I imagine you've heard that before. If you spent any time at all sat in a church pew, that Sentence is not going to be a surprise to you in any way, and that's because it's basically the main truth of Christianity: the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And it's so key that we haven't just read it once; we read it twice in an Old Testament passage, and it continues clearly through the New Testament. Uh, one Peter two verse twenty four says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross." Two Corinthians five twenty one: "God himself, uh, God sorry, God made him who had no sin." to be sin for us. It is a constant, repeated theme that runs right through the whole of Scripture, that Jesus' death was in someone else's place. It wasn't wasn't his death that he died for his sin. Someone else benefited. And who benefited us? The unrighteous, those who don't reach God's standard of goodness. And Isaiah 53 makes it really clear. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, are in that category. You, me, do not reach God's standards of goodness. And Jesus took what we should have had. And I don't suppose that's a surprise to many of you. But he didn't just die for us like a hero in a high street, putting himself in the way of the attacker. On the cross, Jesus didn't just take our place, but he swapped places with us. It's sometimes called the great exchange. He took our punishment in order that we get his perfection. He exchanged our guilt for his innocence. It isn't just a sacrifice to save us from something. It's a sacrifice that he then swaps the thing that we shouldn't have and don't deserve that is rightfully his. The rest of 2 Corinthians five twenty-one goes on to spell it out for us. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that... In him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In simple terms, it's saying Jesus took our wrongness, our sin, in order that we might be able to get his rightness. And it's likely you've heard that before, as I've said. And if you haven't, that is the basic core message of the Christian faith. And I'm sure anybody who sat around you would be happy to talk to you about how that works and how to make more sense of that. And it's possible the idea of the great exchange is, is not new to you. But as I was reading just a commentary on Isaiah 53, just the, the writer just lifted out some more ways in which Jesus exchanges. He doesn't just exchange his perfectness for our sinfulness. There's a whole load of other things that we see in this passage, and as we look at the Easter story as well. And I want to just take that little phrase, so that we... And point out some things from Isaiah that Jesus did or went through so that we might have something far better. It's not really an exposition of Isaiah 53. It's going to be a, a quick skim over the top uh, and, and even a little look in some of the other elements of the Easter story. But looking at this theme of, of he was so that we, um, somebody, uh, some really old friends of mine said to me yesterday, I'm really pleased it's you, Dave, because you're going to be short and you're going to tell lots of jokes It's like, great, no pressure. Um, I can't promise you either of those things, but what I can promise you is lots of really short points. Okay? We're going for a 19-point sermon here, but they're all really short. So here we go. Um, If you're a note taker, get ready. Um, So Isaiah 53, verse 3. Okay? He was despised and rejected by mankind so that we could be loved and accepted by God he was despised and rejected by mankind so that we could be loved and accepted by God Jesus was hated by the very people he loved and came to save rejected by the people who should have known better Jesus didn't deserve to be hated or rejected by anybody but i do God makes it really clear in the bible that my sin gives him every right to reject me I reject him in my sin, so he has every right to reject me. But instead, Jesus faced rejection he didn't deserve, so that I could receive love and acceptance from God that I don't deserve. That's point one. Here we go, point two, number verse three also. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain so that we could know a place of no crying or pain. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain so that we could know a place of no crying or pain. He left the joy of heaven to join a world of suffering and pain and not just the everyday sufferings that you and I expect but the extreme suffering of death on a cross. His sufferings were to buy us a place in the new creation where uh, those All of those sufferings are a thing of the past. The older versions talk about him being a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We are people whose lives are surrounded by griefs, aren't we? Um, So that we could know a place of no more death or mourning where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We are given in exchange a place where not just physical suffering is removed, but emotional suffering will no longer trouble us. Jesus knew grief. So that I could enjoy a place where the death of loved ones no longer hangs over us like a cloud. Jesus knew sorrow so that we could enjoy a place where there is none. Verse 5 By his wounds we are healed, or as older versions put it, by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded so that we might be healed. He was wounded so that we might be healed. This is a reference uh, to Jesus' flogging under Pilate the stripes across his back caused by the whipping from the Roman guards. And you probably know that a Roman whip contained lots of leather strands that had bits of metal embedded in them deliberately designed to rip open the skin. Uh, it was a brutal punishment that could actually be lethal in its own right. Jesus took that so that we could be Healed, he was wounded so that we could be physically and spiritually healed. That our relationship with the Father could be healed. A broken relationship with the one who made us and loved us could then be healed because of his wounding. He was physically wounded so that we could enjoy a spiritual healing of relationship uh, with the one who made us. Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. This relates to Jesus' trial with Pilate and the religious leaders. It tells us he didn't open his mouth in his own defense. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth so that he could appeal to the Father on our behalf. Again, this describes Pilate's courtroom where the only innocent person who ever walked the earth said nothing to defend himself against his accuser. The innocent said nothing in his own uh, defense. But it speaks to us of another courtroom, a courtroom in heaven where the guilty stand before a holy God. And Romans 8 tells us that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, appealing on behalf of those who have put their trust in him to take away their sin. Appealing on the right hand of the Father in order that those who are guilty, myself and all of us included, can stand declared innocent by what Jesus has done. He kept quiet about his own innocence on earth so that he could appeal our innocence before the Father in heaven. In verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. So that we could enjoy eternity. He was cut off from the land of the living so that we could enjoy eternity. It very simply just speaks of his physical death. He allowed his life to come to an end so that we could enjoy life without end. That is what Easter Day is about. That is what uh, Easter Sunday is all about. For him to beat death, he had to die. But the cross wasn't the end. The grave is empty. The body is gone. uh, And his friends have seen him and eaten with him. He was cut off from the land of the living so that we could enjoy eternity. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked so that we could rise from the grave with the righteous. He was assigned a grave with the wicked so that we could rise from the grave with the righteous. Jesus was killed between two criminals, the wicked. We know he was laid in the grave, the one place he should never have been. Because the grave is the reward of sinners. He died alongside the wicked, and by being laid in a grave, he aligned himself with sinners. But as a sinless person, he had no right to be in a grave. But he did that so that we could rise from our grave, something we have no right to do. And so that as we arrive, uh, so as we arise, we arise righteous. He was assigned a grave with the wicked so that we could rise from the grave. With the righteous. Verse 10 it was the Lord's will to crush him so that we could be treated gently. It was the Lord's will to crush him so that we could be treated gently. It's an awful image, isn't it, to describe crushing someone else. It's widely believed there's never been a worse form of death devised than the cross. But God the Father allowed that to happen to Jesus so that we could experience not a crushing from the Father which we rightly deserve, but so that he could treat us gently and to speak to us, not with crushing words, but with tender ones. Elsewhere in Isaiah it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. He was crushed so that we might be treated gently. Verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors so that we might be declared innocent. In a world of demonstrations, we're familiar, aren't we, with the idea of publicly taking on someone else's fight and aligning, themselves, uh, aligning yourselves with them. Um, our neighbor in Yorkshire has a flagpole, as you do, and he flies a Ukrainian flag. He is an Englishman living in England, but he, like many other people, totally unconnected with the war, has publicly declared, I am with them. And I suppose whenever I've read this verse, I kind of see that's what Jesus is doing with us. It's sense of, I'm with them. But what Jesus did is deeper and different than that. For a start, it's one thing to publicly stand alongside people who are innocent and say, I'm with them. It's quite another thing to do it with people who you know are guilty. Jesus looks at our hearts and he sees the guiltiness of our rejection of the Father. And he stands alongside us and says, I'm with them. It is an astonishing act of becoming human to take our case, to mediate for us, to campaign for us, even though he knows we are guilty. But it goes deeper than that. Being numbered amongst the transgressors means when you count the guilty people, you will count Jesus as well. He doesn't just join the campaign. He doesn't just raise placards and walk in the street in London. He joins the convicts in the line-up in the prison yards. For those of you who are familiar with Le Miz, he may call himself Prisoner 24602. But even that isn't the full extent of it. He doesn't just join the convicts in the prison lineup. He replaces them. He becomes the transgressor. All of our sin is placed on him. He then takes on the punishment that all I deserve so that I, if I have chosen to trust in his sacrifice in my place, so that I walk free. The scene in Pilate's courtroom on God Friday captures this. Jesus doesn't campaign for Barabbas. He doesn't even stand shoulder to shoulder with Barabbas. Jesus is condemned. And Barabbas, the guilty man, walks free, even though he is the guilty one. Romans 3.24 says, we are justified freely by his grace. Justified is a term from the courtroom. A justified person cannot have the crime put against them. They've been cleared of it. We wouldn't have lasted very long in Pilate's courtroom. He wouldn't have said of me, I find no basis for a charge against this man. It wouldn't have taken him long. But instead, we, the guilty ones, get to walk away from God's courtroom justified. Because Jesus was condemned, although he was innocent. Pilate's courtroom isn't the only place of exchange, though. The, the parallels continue throughout the Easter story. We're going to just dip out of uh, Isaiah 53 and look at some other things from the Easter story that have this similar content of uh, he was so that we. And there are probably more of these that you could think of as, as uh, kind of you head home this afternoon. As he waited for his sentence to be carried out, as he hung on the cross, we're told that the soldiers, the crowd, the leaders, and even his fellow convicts mocked, and insulted him. So we see that Jesus was mocked in order that we might be honored. He was mocked in order that we might be honored. Jesus tells us in John 12, "My Father will honor the one who serves me." What an astonishing promise to a guilty-hearted sinner to be given honor by the creator of the universe. Jesus speaks in several places of this idea of not just being welcomed into God's home, Begrudgingly, like I've paid for your sin, it's okay, we'll have you back. But being welcomed in with joy and great ceremony. Come and share your master's happiness. He was mocked so that we might be honoured. He was insulted so that we might be exalted to glory he was insulted so that we might be exalted to glory ephesians 2 says god raised us up with christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ jesus the insults the put downs that jesus endured were so that we could be lifted up the put downs that jesus endured so that we could be lifted up Followers of Jesus aren't just those who are welcomed into his home with honour, but are lifted up to the place where they are seated with him. I can't even begin to get my head around the fact that the scripture says that we will be throned with him and rule with him. How does that work? Why? No reason other than the astonishing grace of God. He was insulted for claiming to be sent from heaven. He endured those insults so that we could be lifted up to heaven. And be seated with him. And as part of the mockery, we're told that the soldiers gave him a crown of thorns. He wore a crown of thorns so that we can wear a crown of righteousness. He wore a crown of thorns so that we can wear a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4 says those, uh, sorry, that a crown of righteousness awaits all those who have longed for his appearing. Those of us for whom the hope of life to come far outweighs our hopes of satisfaction in this life. His crown was given in sarcasm. Ours will be given in sincerity. His was given in cruelty. Ours will be given in celebration. His was fleeting. Ours will be forever. And among the insults and the mockery was the snide remark that he couldn't even save himself. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah, the chosen one. He was declared unable to save himself, so that we might be saved to the uttermost. He was declared unable to save himself, so that we might be declared, well, we might be saved to the uttermost. Uh, the old uh, translation of Hebrews 7:24 says that uh, he lives forever; he has a permanent priesthood; he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him to save completely. How wrong those mockers were! He could have saved himself. But he chose not to in order that by dying he could save us completely, all those who come to him. And lastly, the Gospel writers tell how the soldiers shed out his clothes among them as he hung on the cross. He was stripped of his clothes so that we could wear a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61 says, uh, uh, describes God putting righteousness onto us like a royal robe, using it to cover our shame. Rightly, I should go before him, naked and ashamed. But instead, he is the one who hangs naked and ashamed. And so instead, I get to attend his everlasting feast, dressed in the finest of wedding clothes, supplied ...by the king himself. Without the death... ...the penalty would not have been paid. The death was the great substitution... ...the great exchange... ...the one sacrifice we couldn't pay for ourselves... But we've seen all kinds of other things that Jesus went through in order that we could gain something else. And then we take ourselves back into Isaiah 53 and into verse 11. And there's that that word, satisfied. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And if you've managed to keep up and take all my 19 points, um, I may even miss some myself. So if you get 18, don't panic about it. Um, uh, We might look at that list and go, well, clearly, clearly the promise is for satisfaction for us isn't it that I would be satisfied what do I get loved and accepted by God a place of no crying or pain healing of the relationship with my eternal father uh, um, somebody appealing to the father on my behalf for my innocence life for eternity a grave with the righteous um, here the father speak tenderly to us declared innocent acquitted although guilty honored exalted to glory a crown of righteousness saved to the uttermost wearing a robe of righteousness to live forevermore and you look at that list and go well of course it's about me being satisfied it's about Jesus doing all these things in order that when I return to the place that God made me for when I go to glory I am satisfied by all those wonderful things but stop who is satisfied verse 11 who is satisfied he Jesus is satisfied. It's about Jesus being satisfied by what he's done. And what's his side of the bargain? I've run through all the things that satisfy us. And all of those things are true and all those things are things we hope for, things that are true now that should prompt satisfaction within us. But it's saying that Jesus goes through these things in order for him to be satisfied. He is satisfied by rejection. He's satisfied by suffering and pain and wounding and uh, closing his mouth in his own defence. He is satisfied after being cut off from the living a grave with the wicked being crushed being numbered with transgressions being condemned although innocent being mocked and insulted being a crown of thorns pressed onto his head declared and mocked unable to save himself stripped of his clothes and dying a painful death and jesus goes through all of those things and goes Satisfied. Satisfied. I wouldn't remember any of those things as a route to satisfaction. Not a single one of those things would I choose as a route to satisfaction. And then Jesus goes through all those things as a route to satisfaction. Why? As an act of obedience to his Father, as an act of reuniting the relationship between the ones he made and loved with the Father who wants them in his home, that meshing of the promise of what I get of satisfaction brings him satisfaction. It is an extraordinary thing. I hope uh, it did my heart good as I begin this new year dissatisfied with the only thing I've spent money on. What should I be satisfied with? All of those promises of what Jesus has done for me should bring satisfaction and the wonderful, incredible thing that Jesus didn't just go through it and go, all right, I've got to do this. Let's just get this over with. Are you happy now, God? Are you, are you happy? I've done it. Right, can we, can we draw a line under that now? That was never Jesus' attitude. Let's do this because I want you in my home for eternity. And when that is achieved, whatever it takes, satisfy. Satisfied. And I hope that as we start the process of walking into a new year, we can look at our own hearts and the things that we might yearn for for satisfaction and pick maybe just one or two things from that list. I know 19 is ridiculous. See it like a kind of pick and mix. I'm just going to take one or two thoughts away that have done my heart good or what Jesus has done for me, what I gain in response. And as fuel for satisfaction... And to recognise that what Jesus did on his behalf has left him satisfied as well. What an extraordinary sacrifice. Um, I need to confess I stole most of this from a wise old saint called J.C. Ryle. If you ever get a chance to read any of his stuff, please do. Um, And he sums it up like this. I'm going to steal his quote directly as well as his ideas. He is our mighty substitute, our representative, our proxy, our divine friend who undertook to stand in our place so that we get to say with him, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Let me pray. Lord, you were not merely crucified between transgressors, you were crucified for this transgressor. Lord, I want to honor you greatly for all that you offer me as a promise of satisfaction. And I want to wonder in astonishment at all you chose to go through and call that satisfaction in order to win us back into your home for eternity. Lord, we pray that as we look down the route of a new year ahead of us, that our hearts would be regularly reminded of what it did, what you did in order to satisfy us. That we would recalibrate our hopes in line with what you've given us, and that we would see the wonder of the suffering servant who is satisfied by the suffering that he went through in order to win us a place in glory. We give you great splendour for that, and we pray that our lives would be an act of worship in response. Amen.
1: Thanks, Dave, for... For Father, here's just a, a few things which came to my mind as we've been looking at Jesus' experience in order to rescue us. He was wounded so we could be healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, the innocent that uh, he could stand up for us, the guilty. He was cut off from the land of the living so we can enjoy life without end. What an amazing Saviour we have.